Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Home. It looks different for each of us. But no matter what yours may look like, there's a good chance that we all want home to be something similar. It's your home. What do you want it to be like? Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? You doing well this morning? Yeah? You're nervous, I can tell. That's... I want to welcome everybody at our Tempe campus. Good morning. Love you all. I uh, hope you're having a wonderful morning this morning. I want to welcome everybody joining us online. Uh, this weekend, as most of you have uh, already heard, we're starting a two-week sermon on sex. And this is the way we're concluding our In My Home series. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. Put a marker in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, this two-week sermon is 10 points. And remember, we started this In My Home series with a 10-point, one-week sermon. And I've, I got asked multiple times, what's with all the 10-point sermons? I, I don't know. Uh, remember, I'm not trying to, I'm just best when I repeat what I hear. But I would say the reason we're taking two weeks to do 10 points with the sex message compared to 10 points on a one weekend communication message is good sex just takes time. <laughs> and let me just say that most likely there are gonna be a few moments that possibly make you blush. It's okay, please hear my heart. I don't have an ounce of shock jock in me. I'm not 22 anymore. And I don't mean that for the 22-year-olds right now. I mean that's what I was like when I was 22. I'm twice that age now. I'm not here to shock you. I'm simply here to go through God's word. And uh, I'm not gonna blush. And the reason is because God isn't blushing. And if he's not blushing, part of my job is not to blush. And we're going to talk about some things. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you've never heard in church before in your whole life. So just go ahead and gear up for it. Okay? Like I already know there are a couple of moments. Just, just be ready. Uh, but it's just so sweet. Thursday night went really well. And I'm just excited to talk about this with you. Not just because it's one of my favorite topics. But because it's one of God's favorite topics. This was one of the first things he made. And I'm sick and tired of the world acting like this is something that belongs to them. The title of this two-week message is Extremely Intimate Sex. We're not just talking about sexual relations. We're talking about extremely intimate, God-honoring sex. Let me say to the singles, I know uh, some of you may be called to singleness for your whole life. And I absolutely love it. We're going to talk about that in the first point. Some of you may be presently single and 
you'd feel called to be married one day. And that's wonderful. You should take really good notes on this, okay? For those of you who are married, you should take really good notes on this. I am commissioning you to take better notes for the next two weeks than on any sermon you have ever, 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 ever heard me preach in your life, okay? So don't think, oh, people are gonna think I'm dirty if I take four times as much notes. I've never taken notes in church before, but I'm gonna start this weekend. Good for you. Good for you. If you're married, that's a great message to your spouse. But before we jump into this, we have to agree on one thing. Okay, if you're gonna get anything out of these two weeks, we have to agree on something really important. And that's this. The Bible is the bedrock of the bedroom. If we don't agree on this, you're not gonna get much out of this. The Bible is the bedrock of the bedroom. If you think pornography is the best teacher of sex, you will consistently enroll in its classes and call it learning. If you think romance novels are the best teacher on sex, you will constantly find yourself thumbing through their resources and call it learning. But when you understand that the creator of sex is the best teacher of sex, you will run to him for tips, tricks, and ideas. And you'll pour through his word, understanding God wants to talk about your sex life. I believe there's an equation. Last week we talked about the equation of fun, the ABCs. This week, I'm gonna give you 10 elements of what I believe are, are uh, some of the most important elements of a God-honoring sex life. And it equates to extremely intimate sex. It's impossible to walk out these 10 things and not have extremely intimate sex with your spouse. And here's the first one, point number one. We have to start here, honor. Honor. Now, for the next 10 points, you're gonna hear me use a phrase. And every time you hear me use this phrase, I just want you to write down whatever you hear come next, all right? The phrase is, the best sex is. Anytime you hear that, it's not one of the points, it's one of the one-liners, just write it down. The best sex is, here's the first one. The best sex is God-honoring sex. Well, Preston, that's boring. I mean, God-honoring sex, that, that probably means the only position I'm allowed to experience with my spouse is the missionary position because it's the only one that sounds spiritual. <laughs> okay, this is ludicrous. I'm gonna just shatter that myth with one one-liner and then I'm gonna back it up with God's word. Did you know God hates intimate monotony? He hates it. What's monotony? The same thing over and over and over again. And all the spouses on the inside are going, preach, bro. <laughs> God hates intimate monotony. I can prove it. Matthew chapter six. Jesus is teaching on the most intimate form of verbal communication on planet earth, prayer. And Jesus says, while teaching on the most intimate form of verbal communication, prayer, he says, hey, when you talk to the father in prayer, don't repeat yourself over and over like they do. Let me give you another way to hear that. That the God of the universe says to you, says to me, in regards to our intimate communication with him, 
Preston, I love it when you say, I love you. I love you, Father. I love hearing you say that, Preston, but I'm divinely romantic. And here's what that means. One of my favorite things is when you find a new way to say the same old thing. Don't say the same thing over and over to me, Preston. If you love me, pursue my heart. And if you wanna pursue my heart, here's what my heart loves. I love to hear you find a new way to say the same old thing. God hates intimate monotony. Okay, if God hates it as it relates to the most intimate form of verbal communication, why do we automatically assume God would love it as it relates to the most intimate form of physical communication between man and wife? This is crazy. God desires your sex life to be blessed, not boring. And what did we learn last week about the word blessed? What does it mean? It means happy. God wants your sex life to be blessed. Well, how does one honor God with their sex life? By following his equation for it. And the first is honor. Genesis chapter two, if you turn there, let's read it together, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Think about this. God had just looked at everything and said, it's very good. And then this is the first time he says, not good. And in the Hebrew, literally, the sentence starts off with those words, not good. Not good. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her, he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. Hit the pause button. Listen to Adam's heart crying out. He had had all of the animals on the earth brought to him to be named. And they most likely came in pairs. He's seeing every animal had a mate. But he didn't have a mate. And finally, now he has one and he says, at last, she'll be called woman because she was taken from man, from me. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, I wish I had more time. I, I don't, I actually thought about splitting this message up into two weeks as well, but I just can't keep doing that. Otherwise we'll be here forever. Two things we see in Genesis 2:24: priority and parameters. Priority and parameters. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Priority. For marriage to be honoring to God, it must take priority above everything but God. My marriage takes priority over my children. I love my kids, as expensive as they are. I love them. I adore them. But they do not take a higher place than my marriage. I love my parents. They don't take a higher place than my marriage. I love my job. It doesn't take a higher place than my marriage. Priority. Marriage done God's way 
can't be done when it's not the second highest priority of your life after your relationship with God. Second thing, parameters. And the two, husband and wife, are united into one. I want to be sensitive with this. They're parameters. Not husband and husband, not wife and wife, not man and animal. Husband and wife. The parameters that God established. Now, let me speak to the singles for a second. And let me just say this. One of the things that Genesis 2 helps us understand is that sex is natural. But that doesn't mean it's necessary. You might actually be called to a life of celibacy. Now, some of the singles are going, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) But let's not laugh at those whom God calls to be celibate, to be single for their life. Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He says, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet, each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Here's what Paul's saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Both are a gift from God, marriage and singleness. If you're single, please don't see it as a curse. God has a purpose for this season of your life. Make sure he's getting what he's asking for before you say, I do. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Life without active sexual relations is not inferior or deficient. Only when sex is idolized can the belief exist that a life is incomplete without it. Paul, what he literally says is while marriage is allowable, celibacy was superior. Sex is not the pinnacle of human existence. Intimate relationship with God is. So let's just calibrate that. Let's not worship at the altar of sex. Let's not in our hearts get more excited about Preston talking about sex than about the blood of Jesus, right? Sex is not the pinnacle of human existence. Intimate fellowship with God is. Now, if we're gonna talk about honoring God with our sex life, one of the things we have to talk about is lust. It's one of the biggest things I get asked about by men typically Preston, I'm trying to honor God with, with my life. I'm trying to honor God with my sex life, but I am battling severe lust. First, let me help calibrate your mind because I've actually heard enough times to finally publicly correct it where this is a phrase I've heard. I just have these urges. I'm like an animal with urges. And here's what I need to say. You're not an animal. If you were an animal, if Adam was an animal, then one of the animals would have been found to be a suitable helper for him. So please do not say to your wife, I'm sorry, I just have these animal urges. I have these urges that I just can't control. Remember, self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit. Please don't act like your sexual urges are not able to be controlled. You're not an animal. You have a desire for these things, but it doesn't mean it can't be controlled just like any other desire like mine for Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream. (laughs) But let's talk about lust for a second. Job chapter 31 verse 11 talks about how dangerously powerful 
lust is. For lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. It is a fire that burns all the way to hell. Lust is compared to an, a very powerful fire. It would wipe out everything I own. Okay, here's another best sex one-liner. The best sex is fiery sex. The best sex is fiery sex. I'm gonna present something to you that maybe you've never thought about before. The word lust literally means the desire for sexual pleasure. Clearly, the word lust in scripture goes further than that and it means the desire for sexual pleasure outside of God's, God's boundaries, okay? So lust being an evil thing. Now, I wanna teach you something, especially if you battle the spirit of lust. How do you overcome ungodly lust? Here's what I would say, fight fire with fire. Fight fire with fire. One of the tactics firefighters use for a fire that's getting out of control, let's say in a huge forest and there's a home in the middle of the forest, they will create a perimeter fire around the home, burning up everything before the big fire gets to it so that the big fire doesn't jump into what they're trying to protect. So I'm gonna present something to you that, that I'd never thought about until this week as I was studying this. Here's how I think we fight ungodly lust. You ready? Godly lust. Godly lust. And maybe because you've thought that lust can only be a bad thing, you don't even think it's possible for there to be such a thing as godly lust. Let me show you, there are apparently in scripture different kinds of lust. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. He doesn't just say lust, plural, a variety, multiple types of lusts. I'm just submitting to you. I'm not saying, I, I've got book, chapter, and verse. I'm submitting to you what I believe is a godly principle. Godly lust. Let me give you my definition for godly lust. The desire for mutual sexual pleasure that honors God and brings me closer to my spouse. I could spend the rest of my life being happy about that right there. The desire for mutual sexual pleasure between me and my wife, which honors God and brings me closer to my spouse. Fight fire with fire. Here's what you need to understand about your pastor. This week, back in my office, while you thought I was praying and studying the entire time, your pastor got distracted by lust. He was literally, and they're cheering about it. Because <laughs> they know where I'm going with this point. Not lust over another woman. I got distracted by lusting after my own wife having thoughts about my beautiful bride that God has given to me as a gift and me to her as a gift. Let me just say it the way it needs to be said. Your pastor has a lust problem. I can't stop thinking about my wife. And if, if you have a problem with that, let me present the alternative. Would you rather I lust after another woman? Preston, I don't know that this is godly. Ready for the one-liner you're gonna hate then? If it isn't wrong in my bed, it isn't wrong in my head.
I am literally jacking with some of you right now. Is this okay? Is it possible God allows this? A uh, man and woman were walking around naked in the garden before the fall. Holla at your boy. This is what frustrates me about the church and sex. That we look at sex like it's the tree in the garden that God said, don't eat from. Remember, God says to Adam, don't eat from that tree. Now, bud, look at all the other trees. You can eat all of them. See, we act like what God says about sex and marriage is, Preston, you get to pick one tree. That it's literally the opposite of what he said to Adam. Preston, you get to pick one tree. You pick Holly, that's your one tree. Don't touch any of the other trees. I submit to you, I think that's the wrong way to see the garden of marriage. I believe what God is saying is, Preston, here's the one tree you can't eat from. Don't bring an outsider into your bedroom. Look at all the rules about sex. They all have one thing in common. Don't bring somebody else into the bedroom. Pornography, don't bring the vision of another woman into your bedroom, Preston. Don't sleep with an animal. Don't bring another into your bedroom. Fornication, sex before marriage, don't bring someone into your bedroom that isn't your spouse, Preston. Adultery, don't bring someone who isn't your spouse into the marriage bed. All of the rules come down to one. They can be summed up with one. Don't bring another into your bedroom. God says, don't eat from that tree, Preston. And then he looks at all the other trees in the field that is called Holly Ann Morrison and says, son, you can eat from all the trees in the garden. To which I looked him in the eyes and said, challenge accepted. Preston, I've never thought about sex like this. It doesn't mean the way you've thought about it all this time was right. Maybe you've been wrong. God wants us to honor him with our sex life. Not by not doing it, but by doing it his way. Second element of this equation for extremely intimate God honoring sex, innocence, innocence. The best sex is pure sex. Genesis 2, 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked. Say like a Texan, naked. They were both naked, but they felt no shame. This is the goal. See, we laugh and giggle about sex and Preston's teaching about sex from the pulpit, but it's actually not a funny thing to me because I've spent far too many hours over the last 21 years of my life counseling with couples who have immense pain and or shame connected to sex. And I've seen it rip apart marriages before. It's not a laughing matter to me. This is serious. And innocence is one of the reasons why sex is so commonly abused in the bedroom. All right, here's a challenging moment for you. I wanna talk about something. I will bet you $1,000 you've never heard talked about in church. I wanna talk to you about Adam's first erection.
Because I think without even realizing it, I know most of us have not thought about Adam's first erection much. <laughs> but I spent a little time thinking about it this week. And I know that in the first couple chapters of Genesis, we don't read every single moment of, of Adam's life. He was walking around in the garden completely undressed with his wife in the presence of God at all times. And if you don't think innocently, you will think that that's weird. God's desire from the beginning was innocence. And unfortunately, with the fall came a loss of innocence. But I just want you to think about how the conversation between Adam and God went. The first time he looked at Eve and realized something was happening that he had never had happened before. I just think he looked at God the Father like, what's going on right now? This feels amazing. What do you think God would have said in response? Here's what I think a lot of us think. That God would have said, bro, put that thing away. Holster that thing. What are you doing, you filthy little pervert? I don't think that's what God said. He's the perfect daddy. And what do daddies do with their little boys when they're learning innocently? I think the father might have said to Adam, I know, I made you that way. I put more nerve endings in that part of your body than you have thoughts in your head. And I put something inside of your heart that when you just look at her, something supernatural happens to you and your body. See, when we have lost our innocence, we can't imagine an innocent conversation between God and Adam about his first erection. But I think Adam approached it like a little boy. And I think God was not flustered at all. I think he just taught him. And I wonder if Adam didn't at one point just say, what do I do with it? And then that's when God and Adam had the sex talk. People, God made this. God created our bodies to work this way. We need to get back to his goal for innocent minds and hearts in our everyday lives, especially in the area of sex. But Preston, my first erection was when a man molested me when I was seven years old. Sex will never be pure to me ever again, Preston. How can you even assume that I could think purely about sex? The first time I had an orgasm was when I was nine years old and a man did something to me I didn't even ask for. How could sex be pure to me, Preston? And I can't tell you enough times I am sorry. I wish it never would have happened to you. Every time I have to sit down with somebody, it shatters my heart. And I can't even imagine how God feels. But it doesn't mean 
you can't get your innocence back. Because in Jesus, wrongs are made right. Titus chapter one, verse 15 says, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. Preston, that's what I'm talking about. I'm never gonna have pure thoughts about this ever again. I'm not pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt. See, Preston, this is what I'm trying to say. I've been corrupted. I've made corrupt decisions. I wasn't sexually abused or molested, but I had sex many times outside of the marriage bed. And there are times to this day, I'm having sex with my spouse and I'm thinking about something, I can't get it out of my head. Preston, I've been corrupted and I'm never gonna be able to be pure again. Watch this next part. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. Not just corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Here's what that means that believers in Jesus Christ can be made innocent all over again. They can get it back. It doesn't have to be the way it was. That wasn't God's plan. But it doesn't mean yesterday has to ruin tomorrow. And if you need help, we're here to help. Whatever you need. In Jesus, wrongs are made right. We can be innocent even if we lost our innocence. Here's the third element of the equation. Competition. Nothing like a little godly competition in the marriage bed. What does that mean? The best sex is victorious sex. Let me explain this. Because what is victorious sex? All right, here's what I would say. Victorious sex is when we both win, not one of us. How do we both win? We both win when we both want the other to be the winner. This is not just a sexual principle. This is a relational principle. Our marriage wins when we both want the other to be the winner. Well, Preston, I've tried that before and she, she never wants me to be the winner. Ah, stop, stop. Somebody has to go first. Talk about it on date night. My goal, I want you to win. I want your goal for me to be that I win. I don't want that to be my goal. Then I have to become a selfish lover. First Corinthians seven, verse three. If you put a marker in first Corinthians seven, turn over there. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse three. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. This is so beautiful. This is godly competition. Which of us is going to be better at fulfilling the needs of the other? Again, that's not just a sex principle. That's a marriage principle. Here's another way to say it. God's desire for you in your bedroom is to satisfy gratify, treasure, and pleasure your spouse according to their deepest desires and most necessary needs. Meditate on that for the next seven days. This is God's desire. 
God celebrates as the two of you get into a godly competition to bless the other in the bedroom. Don't be a selfish lover. The best sex is had between two God-honoring lovers whose goal is to outgive one another. For God so loved the world that he gave. He proved his love by what he gave. Baby, I love you so much. I love, baby, I love you. Text five, I love you. But if you never give, you can't say you love. The more you give, the more it's known how much you love. Now, I know there's some that know what verse is coming next. And so they're thinking, oh, here we go. Here we go. We're about to talk about that my wife's body belongs to me, not to her. My husband's body belongs to me, not to him. We're about to talk about it. Let me calibrate your thinking before we jump into this point, all right? Paul is not talking about conjugal rights in 1 Corinthians 7. He's talking about conjugal responsibility. I have a right to your body. It belongs to me. That's actually not what it says. Remember, I've been purchased. So I belong to somebody else. But watch this as we jump into it. But before we do, as we wrap up this point, let me give you a very important verse about godly competition in the marriage bedroom. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. I feel like I should remind all of us, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Preston, that's out of context. No, that applies to anything that can be given. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Don't go into your bedroom, husband, wife, and think about how can she or he satisfy my needs. Go in to honor God by giving gifts to them. I remember the first time I gave one of the most special gifts in our bedroom that I've ever given my wife. I'm not gonna lie, I was celebrating. On the inside, I was throwing myself a party. I literally was. I was like, holla at your boy. I mean, this, this we did it. And, and you might think this is weird because I personally involve God in my sex life. Not in the moment, but usually before and after. Here's why, because he's the creator of it. So I'm here celebrating what just happened inside of my wife. And at the same time I'm celebrating, you might think this is weird. I felt God was celebrating 10 times more than I was. He's like this, Preston. There it is. I've been wanting to give her this gift. And you're the one I wanted to give it to her through. We did it. It doesn't mean that that's the pinnacle, but you don't understand the backstory of my marriage. So don't try and make it mean something you don't understand. I mean, let's be real. The first time I had sex with my wife was the first time I'd ever had sex. It lasted two seconds. And if you ask my wife, she'd say that's as twice as long as it actually was. <laughs> Bro, I'd been waiting 21 years. Some of you are like, I can't believe he just admitted that. This is what leading looks like. I'm not trying to be some ape in a junior high locker room going, check me out. 
I'm trying to say I'm on a journey. I'm learning. And one of the things learners do is they celebrate when they learn new things. It blew my mind when I learned God was celebrating my sex life even more than I was. Every time I do it his way. He was celebrating. Here's the fourth element of a God-honoring, extremely intimate sex life. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The best sex is bloody sex. Please don't take that with a spirit of immaturity. See, I've been trying to tell my wife that during her period, we could still have sex. If you think that's what I'm talking about. The best sex is bloody sex. What does that mean? Did you know the word covenant in the Bible means to cut? And you know what that means? That covenantal sex means someone always has to bleed. Best advice I ever got related to sex was at the time what I thought to be the worst advice I'd ever been given. It was my grandfather who's no longer with us. It was on my wedding day. It was literally two minutes before we're about to walk out and I'm gonna say my vows. And my grandfather pulls me aside and he says, Preston, I wanna say something about the honeymoon. I said, what, Grandpops? He said, whatever you do, don't rape her. Now, as a 21-year-old man, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. She's my wife. Like, There's no such thing. I, I thought it was crazy. Over the years, here's what I learned. That may be the wisest advice on sex anyone's ever given me. Because here's what he was saying, Preston, don't steal it from her. Her body is not like a credit card. Her body is like a bank account. You have to make sure is full of relational equity. Don't you dare steal something for free that is supposed to cost you your life. The best sex is bloody sex. Jesus said it. Greater love hath no man than to lay his life down for his friend. The best sex is bloody sex. You can't be intimate with a selfish person. Sacrifice is what keeps us from being selfish. Keep going in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4. The wife gives, gives, gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Paul isn't saying her body belongs to you like she's your slave, Preston. It says, here's the goal. She would trust you so much, she gives authority of her body to you. And that you would trust her so much that you would give authority of your body to her. This is the goal. One of the most romantic statements I believe in all the earth is this. I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. Every time I give myself to my wife sexually, I am making this statement with my life and body. I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. I give you me, all of me, for all my days. This is why sex outside of marriage will never, ever, ever be as good as sex 
inside the marriage bed. It cannot be. Because you can't say to the person you're sleeping with, I give you all of me permanently. When we have sex outside of marriage, what we're saying to the person is, I'm not sure about you. I kind of like you. I feel strongly about you, but I'm not sure. I can't commit to you permanently. So while I might give this to you, just understand it's not gonna be nearly as good because I'm actually lying to you. I'm making a statement with my body that I give myself to you completely, permanently, but outside of commitment before God. Sex outside of marriage will never be as good. And let me just tell you, uh, to the singles and even to the married people who may be in an adulterous affair right now that nobody knows about. Let me just tell you, I've never seen anything good come out of sex outside of marriage. Never seen anything good. Now, you might be saying, well, but I got pregnant and I had my son. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. That's a completely separate thing. That does not therefore mean that everyone should go out and start having sex outside of marriage. Can God redeem a mistake? You better believe it. But that doesn't mean I should go around making a bunch of mistakes, go and redeem it, my man. I've seen more harm and heartbreak as a result of sex outside of marriage to ever be convinced that it's worth it. Back to the married sex. There's no better foreplay than extravagant sacrifice. I get asked from time to time, Preston, we're getting stale and I feel like we just need a shock to the system, you know, so I started asking questions and one of the things I offer up is when was the last time you made an extra, extravagant sacrifice for your wife? When was the last time she saw you bleed for her? The best foreplay is extravagant sacrifice. Now let me apply this principle to a non-sexual moment in scripture. Go all the way back to King Solomon. Remember the parting words of his father, David, the best king Israel has ever had, not named Jesus? Remember what David said to his son Solomon? He said, get to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Son, have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. I think Solomon always had that rolling around in his mind. When Solomon became king and, and what was customary was one sacrifice. Solomon says, bring out, bring out the sacrifice. They make the sacrifice. The people are there. They're there to celebrate the new king. And then all of a sudden, while they're celebrating, ah, great, the king made a sacrifice. Solomon says, bring in sacrifice number two. And people are like, man, this guy is really excited to be king. He is double dipping here. When one sacrifice is called for, this guy does too. Long live the king. And just as sacrifice two has been made, Solomon says, bring number three. Go ahead, bring four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. We're gonna be here all day. Go ahead and bring them 10 at a time. People are going, uh, what? Bring the next 10. I think people started leaving about 120 sacrifices in. Like, tell us when he's done, we'll come back for the finale. Solomon makes 1,000 sacrifices to God that day. 
when one was called for? And how did God respond to Solomon's extravagant sacrifice? God comes to him and says, what do you want? Like that right there? Buddy, my heart was exploding at 10. You went to 1,000. Ask me, I'll give it to you. Ask me for anything you want. Listen, extreme, extravagant sacrifice always sees an extremely intimate response. God says, tell me what you want, I'll give it to you. That's what sacrifice does. Sacrifice has a very important place in the marriage bed. And here's the last thing, the fifth element for this week, the fifth of 10, consistency. A God-honoring sex life is a consistent sex life. Now, before we jump into this, let me just remind us all that in various seasons, we have different sexual rhythms in marriage. When Holly and I first got married, I, I remember before we got married, one of my coaches in college said, they were talking about marriage in the locker room and he said, grab a, two jars and put a marble or a penny in the jar the first year, every time you have sex with your wife. Every time you have sex after year number one, take a marble out, you will never put as many marbles into jar number two as you put into jar number one. That's what he was teaching us. Like that's the most pessimistic, ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. The only way that that can be true is we completely keep God out of our bedroom. Because one of the things I believe God wants in the marriage bed is consistency. And I can prove it scripturally. You might be thinking, God doesn't care how much I have sex. I beg to differ. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. This is speaking to husbands and wives. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God just said it. Preston, I want you to have a consistent sex life with Holly. It's dangerous if you don't. It makes it easy for Satan to do his job in tempting the two of you when you have an inconsistent sex life. Here's another way to say it. When sex is occasional, demonic temptation is constant. It's another way to say it. Fight fire with fire. Inconsistent sex reveals either the absence of priority or the presence of a problem. Now please hear my heart. Because if, if you and your spouse are not having consistent sex, and what do I mean by consistent? I, I am not setting that rhythm. I don't know what season your marriage is in. So please hear me. It's more for some, less for others. The point is, it's just enough. It's like manna. It's not about how much or how many. It's about what's right for us. Each family had a different measure of manna. It's the same way in the bedroom. You're younger than me. 
You might need more than me. I'm older than you. I might value quality a lot more than you. Different seasons. But please, if you're in a season where you're, it's been months since you had sex with your spouse, please don't beat yourself up. And please don't beat your spouse up over it. All it means is either there's a lack of priority or the presence of a problem. This message, I know I have to check a lot of boxes. I have to speak to various types of people in various seasons of life. I know that there is the single who feels called to a life of singleness. Paul says that's a gift, treated as such, way to go. Way not to be distracted by things that distract me. Way to go. Paul celebrates singleness that God asked for. I also know there's the single who feels called to be married one day. I also know there are married couples who are in a great place, who maybe don't have pain or shame connected to sex from their past or present. But I'm also fully aware that there are some who have experienced terrible pain, trauma, and shame. And sex was the weapon used against them. And there are two types of people. There are those who would say, I messed up with sex. I willingly chose that path. And Preston, I still have issues connected to it. And then the other side of that coin is someone who has been abused sexually, raped, molested, and it wasn't by choice. And these last couple of minutes are really devoted to you. Because this week, I feel like the Lord gave me one of the clearest pictures he's ever given me for a sermon, and it's not an illustration. I really do feel like it, it's, it was a vision. And I wanna be careful with that, that the Lord gave me for you in this message. And I went in to this art gallery and I saw, and I know this applies to men and women, but I saw a woman. And along this really long wall in the gallery, I saw a ton of paintings. And as I walked closer to the paintings, I could immediately tell who the curator of this gallery was. It was Satan. And the curator was standing next to her and he had his hand on the small of her back. And he took her to the first painting and I could only describe the image that I saw as just horribly painful. And it was the first of a bunch of painful paintings. The first one starts, she's a little girl and she's bleeding. And there's someone hurting her. And the look on her face is completely different than the look on the curator's face. 
He's smiling. Her head is dropping. And he takes her to the next painting and he lifts up her head and makes sure she looks at herself bleeding in one of the most painful moments of her life. She just starts crying. And he takes her to another one and another one and another one. And I'm just watching this and I'm so angry. And I, I could just, it's like I'm saying, somebody do something. She wasn't meant to live like this. And then at the end of this really long wall of painful paintings, I saw Jesus standing there in front of what looked to be a mirror. And I thought, why a mirror? These paintings are so terribly visual and descriptive. And you come with a mirror against this? How is this going to work? You can see it. She can't get these images out of her head. The curator gets to the end of this one wall. And Jesus faces her and stands in the way. And the curator steps back like a coward. And her head is down. Like David said, my iniquities are so heavy I can't even look up. I mean, I can see it. And her head is down and Jesus has his nail pierced hand just extended and she can't even see it because her head is so heavy. And he puts out his other hand and he grabs her hands. He pulls her close. She puts his hand, his hand on her chin and turns her face and turns her to look in this mirror. And it's like I was standing behind them. And all of a sudden, what looked like this mirror was, was revealing something that wasn't representing what was standing in front of them. It was something I couldn't see. In the mirror, I could see Jesus bleeding exactly the way that she was in every one of those paintings. I could see it. It was the same blood and she could see it. And something was happening inside of her. And then I looked at her and I couldn't really see her. I could tell it was her, but she was covered in blood. But in this frame, it wasn't hers, it was his. And at the bottom of the painting were the words, in me, wrongs are made right. One of the worst parts about this job is when the Lord lets you feel just a fraction of the pain that some are carrying. It's horrible, it's terrible. And I just know the little girl, the little boy, they've heard a voice every day since those moments saying, this is who you are. And the God of the universe says, that's not how I talk. I don't talk like that. He's lying to you. I don't care how long this message is gone. I just want, if this is you, I just want you to hear what I believe God's saying. Today, it's going to be different. I felt like one of the things he said, Preston, you're going to see the divine daddy walk in and liberate his babies. She's not going to live like this anymore. She's not going to define herself. Well, Preston, I'm never going to be able to forget it. You know what's awesome about our God? 
He doesn't say he forgets your sins. He says he chooses to remember them no more. The one reminding you of those painful paintings is the curator of a terrible gallery. You have to decide if today you're gonna let Jesus grab you by the hand and go back to every one of those painful moments and let him cover them in his blood. Something's not wrong with you. I get that you haven't had sex with your spouse in forever and it's not because you're bad, it's because something bad happened to you. You didn't choose it, you were too young to even understand what was going on. That's not how God talks and today he wants to do something that maybe he's never done in your life. And it doesn't involve shame and pain. It involves love and grace and forgiveness. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to stay out of the way of this moment. I'm just going to tell you what I feel like you said, and I'm just going to be quiet. And We're not going to sing a song with words. We're just going to be present in the moment with the one who made us in his image. If you're single, call to a life of singleness. Take a moment and celebrate it with the one who gave you that gift. If you're single and you feel you're being prepared to one day be married, ask your creator, is there anything getting in the way of me having an intimate relationship with you, God? If you're married and things are great and there's no pain and shame, I want you to ask your creator, is there anything getting in the way of me having an intimate relationship with my spouse? But if you're here and you either made some impure decisions in the area of sex, in your past or present, or you have been hurt badly by sex, by someone who used sex in an unbelievably ungodly way against you. I just want you to let him grab you by the hand and wherever he takes you, trust him. He's not trying to expose, he's trying to cover with his blood. Spirit of the living God, please be so present in this room that we all walk away from this moment saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.
stand? And as you stand, I want to invite our altar ministry team. And I want, I want the staff. I want staff spouses. Uh, this is all that matters. We can meet people later. We can catch up with people later. This is all that matters. Whatever God wants to do in this moment. There's no way in two minutes that everything that God wants to do can be done. It can begin. And maybe miraculously, in two minutes, it happened. But maybe for you, it didn't because there's a lot of paintings to go back to and apply the blood to. After I dismiss, if you sense the Holy Spirit just tugging on you, please, I'm, I'm gonna beg you. I am not too proud to beg. I am asking you and begging you to be more courageous than you've ever possibly been in your life. You are so brave just to have navigated these things and even be sitting in the seat you are. And I believe God wants today to be different than any other day you've lived so far. And if you've either used sex for the wrong reasons and you want to have a bonfire at the altar of God, and to burn those things up so as to never revisit again, which is one of the meanings for repentance. You don't have to come up and say, I've done this, this, and this. You just need to say, I'm ready to do things God's way. I wanna break off every bit of shame that's tried to attach itself to me in my past. Or if you're someone who's experienced pain, don't carry this alone. You don't have to say what happened. I would never ask you to do that. But I am begging you, come pray with somebody. Let the God of the universe use somebody else, just some normal person to pray a divine prayer that could only come from heaven. Let them join up with you, fight with you, stand with you, pray over you, put courage into you. If you need prayer, please don't leave without getting what you need. I'm gonna pray a blessing and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for every single person here and watching online. You are such a good, good father. I love the way you talk. Conversely, I cannot stand the way that stupid curator of that dumb gallery talks. God, I pray you'd silence his voice and you would blanket that gallery, the gallery of their heart, the gallery of their mind. I pray that you would blanket it with your blood, Jesus. Lord, if somebody needs something in this moment, God, please make sure that they get what they need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.